Our gracious Heavenly Father, You are indeed worthy. And Your Son is worthy whom You've sent into the world to die for sinners. Unworthy sinners who deserve wrath and condemnation, and yet we have been, because of Your grace, Your undeserved favor and kindness shown to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ, we've been shown, Lord, blessing, abundant favor. And we thank you that even being this morning together, worshiping you together is, uh, Lord, a benefit that we've received because of Christ and what he's done. Lord, thank you. Thank you. And you indeed are worthy of our praise and of our worship. Father, we pray for this morning that you might uh, make our hearts soft and tender to your word, especially this particular passage that our brother Alex read, Mark 4, and the message that Christ would have for us, not only for the audience of that day, some 2,000 years ago, for, for us, your people as well. Father, help us to be people who are receptive, who have, Lord, not just ears that hear with one side, but those things don't impact our heart affection so that they move us to action. They move us to trusting your Son all the more so that they move us to be on mission on this earth, to obedience. Father, work in our hearts. Help us to be doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Father, we continue to pray for our country and for everything that is taking place here in the U.S. Um, So many things happening in so many different states, including our own. And Father, we pray for your will to continue to be done. We know that you are sovereign and in control of it all. We pray for those who are believers in various branches of government, that, Lord, you would continue to work through your people, that they would be a witness by their words and example of... Uh, people who are on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would continue to work through uh, people who are like us, who step up and and speak up in a way that glorifies you against such a an affront to your name and those things that are taking place and laws that are being passed that are against your word. Father, help us to be people who are not afraid, who do not run uh, discouraged the opposite direction, but that we might gird up our loins with truth so that we might engage this culture that desperately needs to hear about the hope of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20 is our text for this morning. And uh, our brother Alex did such a great job of reading that text. And I hope that you listened um, intently. And so um, as we walk through it this morning... I think that our Lord Jesus has a direct message for us, not only to his hearers and the audience 2,000 years ago, but for us as well who are here today. As you turn there, I want to begin this morning by asking you a couple of questions with some derivative questions. First of all, what is your personal view of the Bible? What is your personal view of the Bible? Is it the Word of God? Or, for some of us, is it perhaps a book about opinions, a book about suggestions, a book of take-it-or-leave-it kinds of statements or commands, that really they're commands, they're imperatives, but they're not really things that we feel like we should follow up with? Is it perhaps a book about morals or virtues, how to become a better version of yourself? Or, is the Bible the Word of God? Which means that if it's the Word of God, and it is, that it's 
the final authority in our lives. Not only for how one person can be made right before a holy God, that is through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for sinners on the cross, but also it's pertinent for our lives in the way that we live, so that it shows in the way that we live in in this world. And that's the second question that I would have for you. It is this, does your view of God's word match your life? Your heart attitudes, your priorities, how you use your resources, how you use your time, your, your conduct, the way that you speak to people, the way that you relate to others. Does your view of God's word, if it, indeed you believe it's God's word, match the way that you live? Does it impact the way that you live? Are you walking in loving obedience to the word of God? We know that none of us are perfect. We know that we're going to fall short. But is your desire to strive to walk in loving obedience to the Word of God this morning? You know, we all have memories of growing up and remember things that our parents would tell us um, as kids or maybe as teens. Or maybe some of you kids or teens that are in here, maybe you can identify with this. You know, sometimes um, as a kid growing up, and I was a pretty... Um, obstinate kid, more in the heart than anything else. So something that was often said to me amongst other things that reflected the type of kid that I was. My parents often said this to me, Kempis, you rarely listen. You're so hard-headed. It's as if what we tell you goes in one ear and out the other. Any of you have been told that growing up or something similar? Some of you, the rest of you are lying right now. Come on, identify with me a little bit, okay? I'm trying to connect with you, right? What do they mean by that? Maybe even some of you kids this morning, your parents already told you that, right? You're so hard-headed. What they were trying to convey to me, my parents, were that, yeah, I was looking at them, staring them in the face as they were giving me a command or something to do, um, and I would say yes and nod my head like I was going to do what they were commanding, but then I went and didn't do it at all. I wouldn't follow through with it. I wouldn't do what they commanded me to do. You know, beloved, the same thing happens in the spiritual realm when it comes to the Word of God. We are people who um, can read the Bible a lot, and that's good that we should do that. We should do that. We we are, are people who memorize the Scriptures, perhaps, and we should do that. We meditate upon the Word of God, and we should do that. We listen to teaching after teaching and message after message, Maybe some of us hear the gospel again and again and again, but we fail to walk and respond in loving obedience to the gospel and to the word of God. That characterizes each and every one of us to some extent or another, but some of us, that is the pattern of our life and where we are at right now. We don't respond to the scriptures. And even at the beginning stage, we don't respond to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that He is the only way, the truth, and the life, that He's come to die for sinners on the cross, and no matter how much you've heard that message, you simply won't respond in obedient faith and repent and believe in Christ alone that you might be forgiven of your sins. We could be in danger of doing that this morning. And that's why Mark chapter 4, the passage that my brother read for us this morning, is so important for us to consider from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because here we have the master teacher 
challenging you and I to carefully consider, market, how we respond to the Word of God. Beginning with the message of the Gospel, the good news concerning the person and the work of Christ. And the way that our Lord does this is by teaching the the famous parable of the sower and the soils. That really is the parable of the four soils because that's what the focus is upon, on those four soils. You know, the word parable is a compound word that could literally be translated to throw or place alongside of. To throw or place alongside of. A parable could be an illustration. It could be a wise saying, a word picture, a short pithy story thrown alongside of a truth parallel to a truth to illustrate or elucidate that principle or truth. Parables were not unique to our Lord. There were rabbis who used parables regularly in those days. Parables were not unique even to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have examples of uh, types of parables. So they were not unique to our Lord Jesus Christ. But why, in particular, does Jesus, in Mark chapter 4, use this method of parables to teach, in particular here in Mark chapter 4? Because there's some uniqueness to this uh, method of our Lord of teaching in parables to our context here in Mark chapter 4. And here's the purpose, beloved, of why Jesus teaches in parables here in this particular text. And it's twofold. It is to reveal and to conceal. It is to reveal truth to those who have trusted in Him already at that point in time. To the believers who are amongst Him. Including His disciples, minus, of course, Judas Iscariot. But secondly, to conceal or hide the truth from the unbelieving who are already rejecting Christ. Remember uh, the background and the context of the parables right before in Mark chapter 3. What have we seen? We just saw in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, the last couple of weeks, that the religious leaders have sent even a delegation from Jerusalem to pronounce their official rejection of the Messiah, of Jesus' words and works, even attributing to Jesus that He is empowered or indwelt by Satan or demonic forces, and that that's the, the power that He's using to do miracles. That's the official stance of the religious elite coming from Jerusalem. And they're spreading rumors about Christ, vicious rumors, continually talking about Jesus, trying to discredit Him. They have rejected Him. And of course, we saw how the Lord pronounces judgment against them. If they continue down that path, they've committed the the unique to that period of time, unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit in in that day and age. That is the background. And so what does our Lord do? He begins to teach in parables to reveal truth to His genuine followers. We see this in verse 10, if you would look with me in Mark 4, verse 10. It says, as soon as He was alone, this is away from the masses, away from the religious leaders, His followers, along with the twelve, so there were others who were already trusting in Him genuinely, began asking Him about the parable. Right? They want to know what is this, they understand the agricultural imagery that we're going to see, but they want to know what is the meaning of what you are saying. And he was saying to them in verse 11, to you, my followers, 
has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. A mystery is something formerly concealed that is now being revealed to them about the kingdom of God. We already saw back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that the central theme of Jesus' preaching and his ministry was the kingdom of God. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. To you who are following me, who trust me, who believe me, but those who are outside, that is outside the kingdom, get everything in what? In parables. Verse 12 then is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9. The parallel passage in Matthew I think quotes Isaiah 6 verses 9 and 10. So that verse 12, while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. Jesus is quoting here Isaiah 6 where God specifically commissions Isaiah the prophet to go to the southern kingdom, Judah, and including the capital city, Jerusalem, to a rebellious people who are idolatrous, God's southern kingdom, his people. And, he, and Isaiah is to go and preach to them that they need to repent and that there's coming judgment. And beloved, he does it over and over again to the point of Babylon um, taking the southern kingdom captive. They never repent. And that is the quotation that Jesus uses here to point out to the, the, the fact to his disciples and his followers, that just as Isaiah was sent to a rebellious people who was rejecting the one true God, Yahweh, so it is in this day that he's pronouncing judgment upon those who have rejected his words and his works as coming from the Father, from God, and that he is the Messiah before them. And so that's why he quotes this. So keep this in the back of your mind. Why does Jesus use the method of parables to conceal and to reveal, to reveal truth to the believing, to conceal or hide truth from those who are outright rejecting him already. And so the Lord teaches many of these parables. Mark 4 only records three of these, all of them from the familiar common practice of agriculture. And furthermore, the parable of the four soils is the foundation to all the other parables. We see this in verse 13, if you will notice with me. Jesus says to them, to his disciples and his genuine followers, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? This is Jesus' way of challenging them that if they don't understand this parable, which is the foundation for the others, it's going to be hard for them to understand the others as well. So this is a foundational parable to the other ones that we're going to be looking at in the weeks ahead as we minister the word here from Mark chapter 4. And the central issue, beloved, that this parable of the soils evokes in us and challenges us to ask ourselves is this, what soil am I? What soil am I? In fact, Jesus urges people to consider this by means of two imperatives. Look at verse 3 as he begins to talk about the, this uh, parable. He says, listen to this. But to this is, a, is an addition in your Bibles, if you have the New American Standard, to clarify what he's about to, the content of what he's about to teach. Listen to this, it's an addition, but literally it's listen or hear at the beginning of verse 3. And that's a command. It's an imperative. Jesus is trying to highlight the crucial importance of what he's about to teach. You need to listen so as to give heed to this. And then look at verse 9. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him listen or hear, command, imperative. What our Lord is saying here is this is absolutely crucial for you to, to listen and to give heed to. It's of utmost importance. Now as we look at this parable, don't lose sight, beloved, of, the, of what day this is. 
what day this is. This is very important for us to keep in mind. Remember, this is the same day where if you look back in chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus came home and the crowd again gathered to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. He comes back to his headquarters in Capernaum and he's ministering there and he can't even eat. He can't even care for his own needs because there's masses of crowds constantly around him. An emotionally packed day. This is the same day that those closest to him, and especially his physical family, if you remember, had treated Jesus as a misguided fanatic. He's well-intentioned. He has good motives, perhaps. But he's overly zealous for his own good. And they had come to rescue him from from self-destructing, so to speak. This is the same day that the religious elite had been spreading rumors about him, or he found out that they were continually spreading rumors about him, that he was both indwelt with and empowered by Satan or demonic activity, that he was essentially on Satan's side and operating according to the power of Satan the same day in verses 22 to 30. This is the same day still when he spoke about the priority of God's spiritual family, and who knows what happened with his physical family and the backlash that he received from his physical family after verses 31 to 35. This is the same day. It's been a busy day, full of vicious hostility and attacks, emotionally packed. This is just one day of rejection in the life of our Lord. Mark it behind and the back of your mind. You know, I've been pondering as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, how oftentimes, and I do this, we ponder the cross of Christ and the fact that he died in our place, took upon God's wrath for us, and all of the wonderful implications of that, and even benefits for those who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. We ponder that, and we should, beloved. We do it even especially during communion, because we're commanded to. But also, I was struck this week that the Savior also lived for us. That He lived for us. You and I. Each day experiencing opposition, beloved, and hostility like this, and even worse, can you imagine the perfect Son, eternal Son of God, going through these kinds of things so that He might be the blameless, spotless Lamb who went to the cross and was worthy, the one worthy Lamb, as we just sang a few minutes ago, to die for sinners on the cross. He lived for us. So that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are given, we are credited with that perfect life of His, even though we are utterly wretched, wicked sinners. I was just pondering that this week. That each day He suffered, each day He was rejected, each day He was opposed. Ponder that even as we continue to walk through the Gospel of Mark, so that your view of Christ grows and you respond to Him in worship. And wow, Lord, that you could actually love me this way, an unworthy sinner. What suffering, beloved, the servant Savior went through for us. Well, if that day wasn't enough, here's our Lord now, according to verse 1, heading out to the nearby Sea of Galilee, where massive crowds once again gather. Look at verse 1 with me. He began to teach again by the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee, probably the northern tip where Capernaum, his headquarters, was located. And such a very large crowd, it says, gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd, masses, was by the sea on the land. The crowds are so great. What does Jesus have to do? He's got to jump on a a boat and take into the deeper waters. And that boat essentially becomes a sort of floating pulpit as he teaches and preaches to the crowds. Think about that. And there's a sort of amphitheater formed of masses ready to listen to Jesus speak. And think about his audience. 
Most of these people, with very few exceptions, have heard Jesus teach. They've heard about his reputation, heal the sick, cast out demons, etc. They love what he can do for them, but they haven't committed to following him because they don't believe he is the Messiah truly from the heart. Worst of all, the religious leaders have outright rejected him, as we've seen. They're undermining his claims and power by spreading vicious rumors about him. This is the setting, beloved, um, where the context where Jesus now speaks the parable of the four soils. And don't miss this. The seed here is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. The sower is anyone who shares the gospel, anyone who dispenses the word of God. Here it specifically is our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was the personified word of God before these masses about, about to teach them. But most importantly, the focus really becomes in the parable of the soils. These four soils, which represent the heart of every single one of us in some way, shape, or form. Each of us fall into one of these categories. One of these soils describes us in some way, shape, or form. These soils are the heart attitudes of a person toward the Word of God. And as we begin to look at these, I want to call you once again to ask yourself as we look through these, which one of these four soils this morning best describes me? Best describes me. All right, so let's look at these. Our Lord begins with a command as we saw in verse 3. Behold, the sower went out to sow, verse 3. According to the custom of the day, the familiar agricultural language of the day, here's this unidentified farmer carrying a, a bag over his shoulder around his waist full of seed, and he is scattering seed everywhere, maybe uh, seed for wheat or, or barley, who knows? We don't get the specifics about that. But this, this sower, notice, scatters or distributes seed all over the place, lavishly, indiscriminately. He's not picking and choosing where to scatter. He scatters far and wide all over the, the, the place in hope of a coming harvest, right? This is already a quick little lesson for us, isn't it? We are called to faithfully just dispense the word of God, to scatter it. Anyone indiscriminately that we come around, we should be people who are sharing the gospel, sharing about the person and the work of Jesus Christ with that person. Begins in our homes, out onto our communities, as we've said. Our workplaces, I hope and I pray that you listen to the charge last Sunday morning that you and I need to be people who are making disciples, who are sharing our faith with those around us who need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Or at the very least that you are praying for divine appointments, opportunities for you to be a, a sower who is scattering the word of God this way. Telling people about Christ, their only hope for forgiveness and reconciliation with their creator. I hope that that is us. And so here we have this sower sowing, scattering far and wide indiscriminately. And we have the first soil in verse 4, if you notice. And we'll call this the hard-hearted. The person with a hardened heart. The hard-hearted. Look at verse 4. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. Many times in an effort to cover the, the whole field, a farmer would lavishly scatter some of the seed uh, all over the place and it would fall on open roads. These open roads that, were, that would um, be along the side of, of these mass fields of farming. And so the seed then, if it would fall on these hard places, 
was lying openly on these hardened paths, and it would lead to hungry birds who were watching the farmer. Just as soon as that farmer walked away from that scattered seed, they would come in and, and land, helicopter in, and snatch that seed right off of the hard road so that it wouldn't have an opportunity to grow. What does this mean, this hard-hearted person? Look at verse 13. And he said to them, to the disciples, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Verse 14, The sower sows the word. And here's the explanation in verse 15. These are the ones, notice he's speaking of people. These are the ones who are beside the road, where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. Now, at least at first glance, this does sound, as some have skeptically asserted, that like the word is suddenly and helplessly taken from these poor people's hearts. It's snatched by Satan. These people have no choice, no responsibility at all. Satan comes and takes it away because after all, Satan is very mighty and powerful. I read a couple of, of, of um, pieces of literature on this particular soil here where there's this, this, this mindset that Satan somehow is more powerful than God and ultimately if, if it's up to Satan who is the ruler of this world, people won't believe in the message of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a lie, isn't it? Those whom God calls will respond to the message of Christ. But in other ways, beloved, sometimes we express that, don't we? That, you know what? A professing believer who is living in carnality and in the flesh, the reason why they're living that way is because Satan has a hold of them, and there's no way that they could possibly overcome that sin. Listen to me. Satan is not more powerful than God. He is not greater than God. And humans are responsible for how they respond to the Word of God. And humans are responsible for whether they want to hold on to their sin or not, aren't they? James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 puts the responsibility of temptation and even us falling into sin upon us. It says in James 1, 13, let no one say when he is being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. And then James says, but each One is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. It's our evil desire that leads us to sin. It's our own lust and our own sinful appetites. And so humans are responsible for how they respond. And that is the case even here. I want you to notice in verse 15. Look there with me. These are the ones, he says, who are beside the road. In other words, this is where these people already dwell. These people are already in a place, beloved, where they have a hardened heart against God. Their location beside the road pictures their unresponsive, unreceptive ears to the word. Their hearts are stony. Their hearts are not fertile. They're not tender to the gospel. Oh, in Jesus' day, this resembled the religious leaders, didn't it? I mean, they, got, they had all of the proof that they needed. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the message of Jesus Christ. And right before Jesus' very eyes is a case in point of these religious leaders who have hardened their hearts and even rendered an official verdict and stand concerning who they believe Jesus to be, and they rejected their Messiah. They were hardened, the religious leaders. 
They were hardened people. It doesn't matter how religious they were, right? The religious leaders were externally moral. They were people who, like Jesus said, were looked beautiful on the outside, but inside were full of dead men's bones and are uncleanness. Beloved, listen, they were hardened even in their religiosity because they didn't have a heart for God. Because religion, external religion and formalism doesn't save anyone. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. It doesn't matter how much you come to church. It doesn't matter what your outside appearance is. If your heart doesn't love Christ and you haven't committed your life to Jesus, turn from your sins and put your faith in the only hope. You are a person who's hardened your heart against him. Just like the religious leaders. This is the hard, stony heart. They are indifferent to the gospel. There's no serious consideration and contemplation about what they hear. They don't contemplate the seriousness of their sin and their guilty before God. They don't have any thought for their own souls and the fact that anyone who hasn't turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins will spend eternity, eternity, beloved, listen to me, in hell separated from your Creator. The hardened person, the heart of heart, doesn't contemplate those great spiritual realities. In short, they are the unrepentant. The unrepentant. Some of you are doing this. Some of you are, are hardened people this morning. You know, I've met people who are hardened for various reasons. Some people are hardened because of past hurts. Maybe they grew up in a certain way like I did. As I shared a couple of Sundays ago, had a hard life, maybe you did. Maybe there was exploitation. Maybe there was some kind of abuse, verbal or other. Maybe there were some very difficult circumstances. Maybe there was a death in your family. Maybe it was a, some, some circumstance. And because of that, you have heart in your heart because you blame God for the way that things have not gone better in your life from your own perspective. And so you harden your heart against a merciful God. Who could it be? Could it be, as I found out in my own personal experience, that God had allowed me to go through those things as a kid and as a youth, beloved, to remind me of the utter despicableness and hideousness of sin and the reality of human suffering in a broken world here on this earth, so that Christ, when Christ was presented to me, oh, he was so much beautiful and so much greater. Because of the things that I've gone through, I've seen sin, you've seen it. You've seen those difficulties. Could it be that God in his magnificent sovereignty and infinite providence and wisdom has allowed for you to go through those things so that you might see how much greater Jesus is and that one day all of that suffering and all of that pain and all of those things that happen to you in your life will be done away with. There will be a new heavens and a new earth and you will reign with Jesus on this earth if you will turn from your sins and trust in him alone. Could it be? But instead, you've hardened your heart because of your upbringing. I met people who are just skeptical. I need more answers. I need more answers to my questions. Listen to me. Romans chapters 1 and 2 talk about the fact that you are absolutely a cannibal before a holy God who has given you his nature so that you might behold his glory and his existence and your failure to give God thanks and to acknowledge your creator holds you directly responsible. You are a rebel sinner against the holy God. And Romans 2 speaks about the fact that God has given you a conscience that speaks to you about those things that are right and wrong. 
You have no excuse. And the issue, such as even in the example of the religious leaders, is not that they didn't have enough proof. It's not that they needed more of their questions answered. It's that their hearts had been exposed, beloved, and they were rebels. They had rejected their own Messiah, you see. They didn't need more proof. They were skeptical because they were unbelieving. That was the issue. No amount of proof is going to soften your heart, all right? And I do believe that when we evangelize and we share the gospel with people, if somebody's genuinely asking for proof, we should give it to them. We should open up the word of God and show them that our faith is absolutely reasonable. But ultimately, you understand somebody who begins to argue about Christ with you and, and, they're, and they're, they're laughing at you and they're making jokes and all of that and they become um, even aggressive, they don't want to hear more proof. They're unbelieving. They reject the proof that you're giving them, such as the religious leaders. But some of you have hardened your hearts because of that. Some of you have hardened your hearts because maybe you've seen bad examples of so-called professing believers or maybe even genuine believers whom you see. Well, they fall short. They're sinners. Absolutely. Join us, right? I mean, Christians are sinners saved by grace. Should we live a life of integrity? Absolutely. Should we be striving to, to be absolutely obedient to the Lord? Yes, but Christians fall short. And so you can't help hearting your heart by saying, well, look at the weaknesses in that person. Listen, that's exactly case in point why that person needed Christ. Because if they're a good person, then what need is there for Jesus? So you can't harden your heart because of that. Is that you this morning? Are you the hard-hearted? Can I plead with you? Harden your heart no longer. Recognize that you're a sinner who falls infinitely short of God's holiness and perfect, perfect standard of perfection. You are a sinner who stands guilty and condemned before your Creator. And the only one through whom you can receive forgiveness is Jesus Christ who came to earth, lived a perfect, blameless, sinless life, went to the cross to die for sinners in the place of sinners like you and I. And by trusting in him alone, not in your works, not in your religion, not in your family upbringing, none of that, trusting in Christ's atoning work alone, can you be forgiven? Can you be saved? Harden your hearts no longer, my friends. If that is you this morning. So soil number one is the hard-hearted. Soil number two, notice in verse five, we'll call this the shallow-hearted. The shallow or superficial-hearted person. Verse five, other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. Verse six, and after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Often seed, as this farmer was scattering seed, would, would, the seed would fall upon a very thin layer of soil. But beneath that thin layer of soil was solid limestone. Limestone bedrock. And this would then lead to two things. With no depth of soil, that, that plant would shoot up or spring up too quickly due to the heat below that surface. And secondly... The worst part about it was that the plant would shoot up so quickly that it was unable to lay down, put down deep roots and feed itself on the the moisture underneath. And so what would happen is that the sun would then beat down on it and it would be scorched and, and quickly die off, bearing no fruit. 
what's our Lord talking about here? Look at verse 16. In a similar way, there are those in whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word of God, or the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Our Lord is describing here a person who is initially excited, enthusiastic, externally speaking, about the gospel, about this good news, perhaps about some aspects of the word of God. Their emotions are, are excuse me, aroused. I've met people like this. People who made professions of faith that I shared the gospel with or others shared the gospel with. People who even, a couple of people even got baptized in our church over the last decade that I've been here. People who joined then uh, the New Believers Fellowship or now the Foundations class and they're in there and they're eager and they're learning. And it seems externally speaking that they're excited. They're emotionally moved by the things that, that were seen from the Word of God. But eventually what happens? They're gone. Absent. What happened to them? Hey, what happened to such and such? Well, they haven't been around in a couple of months or six months or a year or five years ago that person was coming to the church. What happened? Beloved, listen. The quick answer is their faith was not genuinely rooted in Christ. There are those who in 1 John 2.19 were told that they were not really of us. For if they would have been of us, they would have what? Remained with us, right? You can't lose your salvation. You're protected by the power of God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 5. So what was going on? They were deceived. Somewhere in there, in a way that we can oftentimes not even understand as human beings, their hearts did not belong to Christ. They were not rooted, truly trusting in Jesus alone, because a person who trusts in Jesus alone will persevere until the end by the power of the Spirit of God, right? God will keep us no matter what struggles we go through, and we all go through them, no matter what weaknesses we might have. Maybe they thought for a while, hey, Christianity is about me becoming a better person. It's all about me being a better me. Maybe that's what they thought Christianity was about. Maybe the shallow, superficial person was the person who, who really liked the, the social connection of being around God's people in this thing called Christian churches. Maybe they really like being around. They like all the food. They like all of the goodies. Maybe they even love the social connection because after all, fallen or not, right? And all of us are fallen. We have this, this thing called the image of God. And part of the image of God is that we are all wired relationally. We, we long for social relationships. And that's a good thing in its purest form. But you know what happens? Often people um, equate a relationship with Jesus by which then you are put into the body of Christ, spiritually speaking, and other believers who've turned from their sins and trusted in Christ, people equate that with, oh, these people, I'm part of them. Even though they've never repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ. So maybe it's the shallow, superficial person believe that. I love the social interaction, but for a while it was good. And then eventually I started seeing that people who are Christians are also sinners saved by grace. And they got disappointed and they thought, ah. Eh, too good to be true. I'm out of here. They were not rooted in who? Christ. In Christ. Other people, maybe they came to the church because they saw that, oh man, some of these people have some of the same common interests that I do. Music and playing instruments and maybe literature. 
And man, this, these, these number of people here have this, come from the same job that I do. Maybe in Disney or Warner Brothers or other places. Oh, I really can't. I feel like a sense of belonging here. But they haven't repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. They haven't come to the point where they realize that they need forgiveness for their sins. That there's a deeper spiritual reality. And that people who are here first and foremost champion the reality that our identity is in Jesus Christ alone. And then through that faith in Christ, we are put spiritually into the body of Christ. The people of God, the redeemed, right? There's a difference. A shallow, superficial person who's around for a time might be around for various reasons like that. Listen, God wants all of us. When it says here in verse 16 that they immediately received the word with joy, does that mean that Jesus is saying there isn't joy in a genuine believer? We're all just, you know, to be put it, thrown dust and ashes and miserable every single day of our lives? Absolutely not. He's talking about an emotionalism that is not rooted in a in the right understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and the work of Jesus. Emotions are something that God wants, including joy. But this is a person whose excitement is not rooted in Christ. And I would say, add this, in a right understanding of the cost of following Christ. And the cost, notice verse 17, they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary then when affliction, which has to do with, with pressures, hardships, when affliction or persecution, that is opposition or conflict arises, not because of their sin, but notice, because of the what? Of the word, immediately they fall away. See, there are people who don't understand that the call to follow Christ, beloved, is a call to loving obedience. Listen to me. Amidst hardships, afflictions, persecutions, and sufferings. How many of us can say amen to the fact that when, since you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, life hasn't been easy? Amen? <laughs> Man, you could spend the whole day or the whole week talking about our afflictions, even in the present I don't know about you, but my life got harder when I came to Christ. All of a sudden, my biological family was opposing me, excluding my siblings. Um, I was ostracized from certain circles. People looked at me weird. I started duking it out with college professors because they were promoting certain things, and I would talk to them after the classes at my community college. I started experiencing opposition. Listen, the shallow, superficial person doesn't understand that part and parcel of following Jesus Christ is costly discipleship. Suffering. That's a bad word, I understand, in our culture here in America, in our Christianity. We don't like to talk about suffering. That's why I appreciate our brother, pastor in, in uh, Minnesota, John Piper, and others who have really come to, to, to teach us over three, four decades and it isn't that it's the first time it's ever happened, but to bring the fullness of the, of the summons of the gospel call to also deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Christ if you're a genuine believer. Or are you adding to the, to the, to the, uh, to the, the free grace of Jesus Christ by saying that we're also going to be suffering and all? No. 
What I'm telling you is, is that God's grace is free, free in the sense that we don't work for God's grace or favor. It's based upon the merits of Jesus Christ, his person and his work alone. But beloved, listen to me as a believer, you are signing up for suffering, opposition, affliction, all of that, including the fight daily, every single moment of the day against your and my sin, right? Every day. Whereas before there wasn't a fight. Now there's a fight where every single night you lay your head on the pillow and you recognize that you blew it and you need to confess your sin to the Lord and to those people around you, right? Experience that every single day. And then you mature in Jesus and the years pass and you realize, man, I didn't even understand the depth and the profundity of my sin that now it's about motives and intentions and attitudes. Oh, Lord. And then you realize why only Jesus and Jesus alone could possibly go to the cross to die for you on the cross. And you could never do that yourself. Right? That's the problem and the danger with teaching moralistic religion. That people can actually go through the motions and believe on the outside that they are moral enough, that they reach God's standards. Beloved, listen to me. Jesus went deeper. He went to the heart level, didn't he? To heart righteousness. And only Jesus Christ alone, the God-man, was worthy to go to the cross to die for sinners because he alone is blameless and perfect. None of us measure up to that standard. This is hard for people to understand, for all of us to, extend, to understand to some extent or another. The prosperity gospel in our country hasn't helped. You can have a trouble-free life along with riches and health and wealth and Jesus. Huh, really? I can have health and wealth and riches and a trouble-free life and that little Jesus? Give them to me. I'll stick them in my back pocket. You ought to see a good documentary that just came out. Somebody um, recommended it to us. Um, It's called American Gospel, Christ Alone. American Gospel, Christ Alone. You can download it on Amazon. Excellent documentary on the dangers, the destructive deception of the prosperity gospel in our country that we've exported to these other places, third world countries, sadly enough. That's coming out of America, right? Watch that. The prosperity gospel hasn't helped the shallow, superficial, hearted person. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He tells the the multitudes in the climax, really, the the hinge passage in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following. This is Jesus in Mark 8, 34, telling the multitudes, Whoever... Whoever wishes to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know what the cross was a symbol of in those days? Not even a quick death. A lot of suffering, slow, excruciating, shameful. And Jesus says, take up your cross if you want to follow me. In other words, be willing to suffer, even to the point of death, and follow me. Costly discipleship, beloved costly discipleship listen to philippians chapter 1 verse 29 paul writing to the philippian believers for to you philippian christians don't think about this as non-christians for to you philippian christians it has been granted and that word granted has is the same word from which we get grace for to you it has been granted this grace has been given to you for christ's sake not only to believe in him namely christ but also to suffer for his sake. 
couldn't be clearer. What's up with our, our catty Christianity? Where we don't think that we should suffer. Listen to me. You need to show up, beloved, to the April event that we're having here that's focused on, on the persecuted underground church. And this year's theme is focused on prayer and fasting. But the main thing is, is, is exposure to the American uh, church especially about what's going on all around the world, the underground persecuted church. We need to not only be informed, but be gripped by the magnitude of what our fellow brethren are going through in other countries. Some of us are completely ignorant. And we think that, oh man, the demands for Christianity here in America are so great. We're already beginning to be persecuted. All this government... All this city that we live in, we know nothing of what it means to suffer, beloved. There are brethren that we will never hear about until we get in heaven if we're genuine believers who have been beheaded for their faith, being tortured for their faith in some of these places. And we absolutely don't even understand the magnitude of what it means to suffer like that on the physical level. Oh, we need to be exposed, don't we? The early church understood costly discipleship. And they weren't about shallow heartedness, shallow commitment to Christ. Listen to this in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, after being flogged. It says that the apostles left after being flogged, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering shame for the name of Christ. Rejoicing. I mean, flogging was a excruciating. I've been hit a couple of times in my life by a bat, by a naughty younger sibling of mine. I have seen a couple of people get hit by pipes, metal pipes. Can you imagine flogging, being hit by these sticks over and over again until you were bruised all over the place? And what was their response? They were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. (laughs) I can't even identify with that. Can you? Costly discipleship. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas, after having been stoned, encouraged the brethren with with these words, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many trials and tribulations. Saying the pathway to enter the kingdom of God, at least physically speaking on the human level, they're telling these brethren, is through trials and tribulations. Yes, your soul is secure. Yes, they are followers of Christ, but they're suffering. There's trials, there's tribulations, costly discipleship, brethren. Costly discipleship. And I speak to you as a broken sinner to broken people. I don't even understand this right here. I'm quick to whine about my suffering. I'm quick to whine when circumstances aren't what they should be. Are you? See, some of you are lying again. (laughs) Hard to get the congregation to identify here. Come on, brethren. You get the point, don't you? The call to follow Christ is free in the sense that it's a free gift of grace. It's not merited. It's based upon the person and the work of Christ, but it's costly to us in the sense that Jesus, beloved, listen to me, to you who are the shallow and superficial hearted kind of a person, Jesus requires your total and exclusive allegiance. Total and exclusive. It will cost you everything. It's free because Jesus died to... to, to, um, Uh, preserve that salvation for us if we put our faith in him alone it's free in that sense but it's going to cost you everything everything so here is a shallow hearted maybe that's you this morning 
You know, you made a profession of faith at some point in the past. Maybe you even experienced a sense of excitement. Maybe you were forced to make a profession of faith. Somebody gave you a guilt trip. There was somebody, somebody up front calling people to come up to the front, and you did it because the emotion and the excitement of the moment was so great, and you did it. But you are not trusting in Christ in the present. You don't love him. You know it. It's not a, life is not about Christ. Life is not to you what Paul described, to live as Christ and to die as gain. You don't love him. You don't, see heart, you don't have a heartfelt desire to obey him. Listen, obedience, as we said last week, is not the basis of one's salvation. Beloved, Christ is. But the true child of God, as I said last week, and as the word of God affirms, desires to obey. Desires to obey. Desires to make to bear much fruit. The true child of God is zealous for the things of God. And when we struggle and when we sin, we want to, to go to our Heavenly Father and confess our sin. Oh Lord, my heart is cold. I had to do that last night, beloved. Oh Lord, I want to make sure that my heart is ready to preach to your people. This needs to come forth from my life first and foremost. That should be our prayer every day, right? Prayers of confession. Agreeing, confession means you agree with God and how he sees about your sin. You see it the same way. That it's an affront to his character and you confess it. And you ask God to renew you once again and you return to the beautiful gospel. The gospel is not just for, for believer, I mean for con- new, new converts, beloved. The gospel is for believers. We return again to that fountain of living water, the gospel, again and again in the midst of our struggles and our sin because we want to be holy, right? Listen, the genuine believer wants to be holy. The genuine believer longs to obey, desires to obey. Let us not be shallow. Let us not be superficial. And if this is you, if you at one point in time had this emotional, exciting response, but you see no fruit in your life, and the issue is not that, that you're navel-gazing daily to see if there's fruit in your life, look at the pattern of your life. And most importantly, look at the affections of your heart. Do you love Jesus? Do you truly love Jesus and have this deep-seated joy that is based upon the fact that you know that no matter how much you struggle, your faith is rooted and grounded in Christ and, you, and you're ecstatic about the fact that you've been forgiven? As a brother texted me this last week, oh, brother, this makes me want to yell when somebody talks about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That kind of joy. Because that brother is going through struggles and difficulties and all of that, but there's this deep-seated confidence, not in his circumstances, not in the fact that life is everything that he wants it to be, but in the fact that he's a forgiven sinner. He's a forgiven sinner. And I plead with you this morning, if you are the shallow-hearted, to turn from your sins today and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to make sure that that joy is rooted and grounded in Christ and that you cost, I mean, that you, you count the cost of following after Jesus Christ. That part and parcel of you following Jesus is that there's going to come suffering in some way, shape, or form. Might you die here physically on this earth? Probably not in America. But there's suffering, isn't there? There's suffering. Well, we'll look at the other two soils in a couple of weeks, beloved. Let me pray for us and our brethren are going to come up for the song. Father God, oh Lord, thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for the fact that our Lord Jesus spoke serious words, but comforting words as well, because if we are hearing his message this morning, 
There is hope at the cross. There is hope for those who humble themselves and who recognize their sin and the fact that Jesus has come to save the worst of sinners. Help us to trust in him alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.